0: A few quick updates as we get started. The Spring Fundraiser, also known as the Car Drive, as I need to replace my 14-year-old 218,000-mile minivan, is running through April 20th, 2018. Find out more about this, including some thank yous I'm sending to donors, in collaboration with the artist Lindsay Wilson, at thepermaculturepodcast.com spring. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Permaculture Podcast newsletter by entering your email address on the sidebar of the website. For doing so, you'll receive an email with a list of six books I think every permaculture practitioner should read to expand their understanding of the land, the wild, and our communities. Also, David Bilbury recently joined me as an ongoing co-host. As part of this work with the podcast, he'll be traveling to Regen 18 in San Francisco, California, May 1st through the 4th, 2018, to connect with speakers dedicated to his interest, weaving together business with the world we want to see. We be going... If so, email David at the permaculturepodcast.com and let him know. If you're interested in going but haven't bought tickets yet, there's a link in the show notes to a 30% discount for podcast listeners. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Amy Strauss, blogger at 10thacrefarm.com and author of The Suburban Microfarm. I wanted Amy to join me for an interview to hear her perspective on creating integrated spaces where people are and will continue. To live for the foreseeable future in cities and suburbs. Drawing on years of experience in the landscape and her neighborhood, Amy shares what we can do to grow in small yards and gardens by considering our edges, what we can do to make a difference in our pantry if we grow for ourselves, or in our wallet if we grow for market, and also her thoughts on what the future of permaculture holds as the ethics and principles are put into practice by people adapting these ideas to where they are and through their interests. Enjoy this conversation with Amy, and I'll join you again afterward. Amy, what did you do before your life as a writer and small-scale farmer?
1: Well, you know, Scott, as cliche as it sounds, uh, my story really starts with my childhood, much like many people's stories start. When I think back to you know, how I was raised, my parents were really big into sports. So that's kind of the area that they pushed me into. And, uh, you know, I was decent at it. I played soccer all growing up into high school and college, and I played several other sports as well. And I was really encouraged to be, you know, a student athlete. So lots of studying, virtues of hard work and discipline. And, you know, I took those practices into college and then... My first career, I found myself as a high school teacher, and which is, you know, a commendable, respectable career. But about a handful of years into it, I realized that the career wasn't actually working for me. It wasn't working for my personality. It wasn't working for my gifts. And I realized I had gone through my whole life just, you know, working hard at whatever I was supposed to do. And I had never asked the question, what are my passions? What are, what are my, what are my gifts? What makes me come alive? And so at the end of that school year, I gave my notice. Uh, I finished the school year and I took the summer to think about what I wanted to do next. And it just so happens that that was the first year my husband and I had joined a CSA. So we were getting a weekly share of produce from a local farm. And um, you know, for a few years there, I had been really interested in healthy eating and learning where my food came from and supporting local farmers. And so the CSA was an extension of that, but you know, here we were getting all of these vegetables and I'm having to look it up and uh, figure out what they all were because they aren't the same vegetables that you find at the grocery store a lot of times, like kohlrabi, for example, and uh, learning how to use it all. But the cool thing about the CSA was that it uh, required me to do a work share component on the farm. And so for the first time in my life, (laughs) I was out in the farm fields working alongside the farmer and other volunteers and you know we were harvesting and sowing seeds and watering and planting things and having my hands in the dirt for the first time and that was really the first moment for me where i was moving from being a consumer to actually participating in the production of my food and i thought it was incredible i thought it was an amazing experience, an amazing feeling. And we were members of that CSA for about three years. Uh, we joined the administration team. So we were helping to make it all work, helping to you know produce and manage all of the food to feed 100 families in the community, organic produce. And I got to see what went into feeding that number of people and how the farmer stayed organized with Charts and graphs and calendars. And uh, it was really eye opening for me. So I think that was really the beginning of my journey to being a food producer.
0: In addition to being a food producer, you're also a creative person with all the writing that you're doing. When you were teaching high school, what were you teaching?
1: Well, you know, it's funny when I think back because I was a high school Spanish teacher. So I guess you could say that it was cultural in a sense. And for me, it was an expression of art to be able to learn to speak a different language. And I was inspired by that. I think when I was exploring this, you know, who am I? What am I passionate about? I did some traveling as a young person in Spanish speaking countries. And that was really inspiring to me. And I wanted to bring that same sort of feeling to my students. I quickly learned that teaching it in a classroom is not the same as uh, going abroad. <laughs> and that was kind of a really hard disconnect for me to to figure out.
0: When you were traveling to Spanish-speaking countries, did you encounter a lot of food growing and those kinds of cultural connections to place at that time? Or were you still kind of in that tourist mode, wanting to see all of the sights
1: You know, when I was traveling, the thing that stood out most for me was learning how other people lived. I loved visiting historical sites. Um, That was really interesting for me. But I loved staying with families in their homes and learning their everyday conditions and practices and, you know, the foods that were important to them. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see or experience firsthand a lot of the food growing, but, you know, for me, it was important in my own personal development to really see that other people lived in different ways. And actually, they lived a lot closer to the land in many instances, and they were happier, even though they didn't have all of these, you know, material things that Western countries seem to promote.
0: From those experiences as a Spanish teacher, as a world traveler, and then as a food producer, what led you to create your 10th Acre Farm?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I, I was working on at the CSA and, you know, I had this experience that, oh man, you know, growing food, this is a really cool thing. And so I started taking some gardening classes locally. And at one point, I was at uh, this. this nonprofit organization that offered gardening classes. There was a little bulletin board outside the classroom. And I was just kind of looking it over on a break. And a job posting popped out at me for a a landscape gardening position working for a women-owned, women-led company. And I thought this position sounded fabulous, although I had no experience to offer. But I applied for the job and uh, it was a really incredible experience for me. Every day on the job as a landscape gardener was like going to school. I learned so much about plants and design. Uh, my my boss there was a specialist in pollinator friendly gardens, native native gardens, perennial gardens, edible you know landscapes, and You know, she knew the Latin name of every single plant, which I just thought was, you know, amazing because this was such a new world for me. And a lot of times at the end of the day, I was sent home with extra plants, Uh, you know, either plants we dug up at clients' homes that, you know, they didn't need anymore or, you know, we bought too many for a job. And so I started tinkering in my own yard. And, you know, as you mentioned, tenth acre farm that eventually became, you know, the name that I gave it. But uh, that's because we were on one tenth of an acre in the suburbs. And so I started tinkering in my yard with these plants that I was being given. And uh, it started me down this path of having a relationship connecting with my own space. And so I would put plants in different places, in different combinations, and then I would say, oh, well, I think I see something else that will work better. And so I was always moving plants around. At one time, during this you know, experimental phase, I decided to tear out the traditional hedgerow that was lining our front porch, and I replanted it with currant bushes. I was really excited about planting something edible. And so I planted these currant bushes there. They're in shade much of the year. And, you know, I didn't know how they would do, but I was excited about the experiment. And um, we ended up getting about 15 pounds of berries a year. Not a ton because it's very shaded, but uh, it was definitely something that improved the biodiversity. It also allowed the landscape to give something back to us. On a side note, the flowers attract hummingbirds. So that was kind of fun to sit on the front porch and watch hummingbirds come in. Uh, But I just started experimenting with things that made the landscape more ecologically friendly. We disconnected the downspouts and uh, hooked them up to rain barrels and made rain gardens. And it was around this time that I started writing about my experiences. And I was still pretty green and still pretty new at growing things. But I discovered you know, this was when 10 com got started, but I discovered that alongside all of this growing stuff and, and learning about plants and landscape and design, I also realized that I love writing about it too. So it kind of um, morphed into this thing that I hadn't really set out in front of me as something to achieve. It just kind of happened. So that was that's been kind of fun.
0: And how long have you been running your blog?
1: Let's see. I believe it started in 2013, but it did actually have a different name before that. And then I ended up switching it over to 10th Acre Farm. The first name I gave it was Heirloom Broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I started that, I think, around 2007 or 2008, and then the name became Tenth Acre Farm around 2013.
0: So you've been doing this now for about 11 years. How does it feel?
1: You know, it's it's funny to think back at those first few years, and, you know, for me, I was just, I was getting in my hands in the dirt and playing with plants because it was it was fueling this new passion that I had and and to see it come alive as sort of a a second career for me has been really exciting. And uh, I I just can't, every day I can't believe that this is what I get to do.
0: (laughs) This kind of work that feeds the soul is truly a delight to engage in. It sure is. (laughs) And with that switch over to 10th Acre Farm from Heirloom Broccoli, The subtitle of your website is Permaculture for the Suburbs. When did you first encounter permaculture and who did you study with?
1: You know, right around this same time that I was working as a landscape gardener, I continued to take classes in my community. I started hearing the word permaculture. And I think, you know, this is kind of the thing where I'm pretty sure I had heard the word many times before before. But it didn't start sinking in until it was something that was relevant to my experience. And so, you know, suddenly I'm, you know, starting to um, be a part of this world with plants and landscapes and learning to connect to my local environment. You know, that's kind of when the word permaculture started ringing in my ears and I started hearing it everywhere. And at one point, I think it was 2007, I heard about a local permaculture design course being taught. I didn't exactly know what permaculture was. It's kind of like, you know, that word that not everybody can define right away. But it just, I intuitively knew that it was something that I would connect with. And so uh, we have a local organization called Cincinnati Permaculture Institute. They are in their 10th year. And it was started By a guy named Braden Trout. He's a permaculture practitioner himself, and we have several other uh, well-experienced teachers in the group as well. And all of these teachers that were part of the group that taught me, you know, have studied with, you know, the big names: Bill Mollison, David Holmgren, Toby Hemingway, and the like. And they were just a really supportive group of teachers. And I'm so glad that they, you know, decided to bring this to the community. In my own continuing education, I've been able to hear Mark Shepard and Dave Jackie speak. And, you know, that's uh, definitely influenced um, my perspective of permaculture as well. But it's been really fun to have this strong local community of permaculture practitioners, um, because everybody translates that differently to relate to their gifts. And so, you know, a lot of people who are doing neat entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial type businesses, many are creating wonderful services for the community. And it's just kind of fun to be a part of a strong local active community in that way. And they've always been supportive of what I've been doing as well. So that's been really fun to be a part of. But it's all sort of shaped for me this perspective of what's possible in the suburbs, you know, living out in the suburbs as, as I started going down this road, I was starting to get more and more uneasy about how do I, how, what is my relationship with my neighbors uh, when I'm going to be doing all of these crazy things in my yard. And, you know, here they are within close quarters of me uh, with their lawns. And, but I realized at some point, that half of all people in the United States, especially, live in the suburbs. And a lawn is the largest irrigated crop in the United States. So that was a study done by NASA, but they discovered that we have more acres of lawn than we do corn (laughs) in the United States. And um, so I started seeing that although the suburbs are kind of this car-centric resource intensive kind of embarrassment in some respects to the good of the environment. But I also realized that there were some really great um, opportunities in the suburbs. So that whole permaculture adage, you know, the problem is the solution kind of came to my mind. And this all kind of came to my mind as part of my permaculture uh, studies. And so I decided, and this was just kind of the the permaculture course really just kind of put all of these thoughts together for me or brought all of these thoughts together for me and uh, helped me imagine what I could do with my gifts in this situation. And so I decided to, at this point, dedicate myself to bringing permaculture to the suburbs and any spaces where we have underutilized lawn, which of course we know is not just the suburbs.
0: (laughs) I was having a conversation with some folks the other day about lawn and mowing and that with the exception of perhaps a play area or for people who enjoy bocce, there are plenty of things we can do with that space other than growing grass.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I... When I speak to uh, my, you know, my readers at Tenth Acre Farm, I, I definitely want to make, you know, this distinction that I'm not demonizing all lawn because I definitely think, you know, there's certainly uh, uses for some lawn. And there's just also some uses for, you know, uh, reducing its grip on our, our property spaces.
0: <laughs> and that focus on the space where people are living in the suburbs and places with lawn. Your recently released book is The Suburban Micro Farm, Modern Solutions for Busy People, which you're selling through your website and then is also being distributed nationally by Chelsea Green Books. From that, what can people expect to find between the covers?
1: The solutions that I write about in the book are really geared towards people like me who are super excited about growing things, about having the, our hands in the dirt, about, you know, producing more food for our households. But, you know, they're also busy and maybe they want to do a lot of food production, but they aren't full-time producers. I also wanted to attract folks who are permaculture curious. So, You know, those people who have, like me many years ago, have heard the word permaculture, have this intuitive sense that it can bring some richness to their experience as gardeners. So that was kind of what I wanted to focus the book on. So I wrote a lot about strategies for managing time and sizing a garden for you know the time you have available to you. I kind of put this into the category of lifestyle design. So applying, you know, permaculture design to our lifestyles because I think it's so important. Uh, we can see these elaborate micro farm projects, and you know, want to do it all. And sometimes part of this process of designing is figuring out what is going to be the most appropriate, the most rewarding and for our specific situation. So that's part of it. I also wanted to include solutions for common challenges like, you know, small spaces, of course, sloping land, poor soil, shade. You know, when I think about regular old homeowners, for example, and, you know, this doesn't have to be applicable to only land that you own, but, uh, you know, for a lot of us, We have land that we didn't end up on because of its farming merits. And so we didn't go out and purchase a piece of property specifically to farm it, but suddenly we have this backyard or front yard that we're looking at and thinking, I really want to put this to good use, but I have all of these challenges to work with. And I hear a lot from my readers, that's kind of the barrier and they get stuck and they don't know how to deal with the challenges. So I really wanted to address those in the book. So that's another part of the book. There's a lot of, uh, it's a 300 and something page books. So there's a lot of in there, but I can say that I also really focused on permaculture techniques that can reduce maintenance while increasing biodiversity. So for me, uh, it was really important to discuss managing water in the landscape. As permaculture practitioners, we know that when we manage water efficiently, we actually create a, a system that's easier to manage and more productive. Yeah, so I can say, you know, one solution that um, just this is just an example of of one thing that I offer in the book, you know, for small space growers, I really encourage looking for unused bases. So, when I got started in all of this, one of the things that I left out of my story is that I really wanted to uh, have a big garden in my yard. But my yard was sloping, it was shady, it had been a swimming pool at one time, so whenever I tried to dig in the dirt, I ran into blue painted chunks of concrete. You know, I had all of these barriers for me and I thought my yard was too small as well. So I actually drew up a contract with a friend of mine who had some larger space outside of the city. And every day as part of a land share project, I drove out there, managed my gardens. If I made a harvest, I shared some with the landowner and then I drove home. And I did this for a whole garden season. And at the end of the season, I thought, you know, if I had just managed my space better at my home, I wouldn't have had to do all of this driving. so I realized in that moment that a lot of times we create these barriers in our brain that make us think that the space we have isn't isn't worthy of growing in so one example is you know looking for unused spaces, and Jeff Lawton has a quote managing the edges is an important first step in ecological property design. So for me, managing the edges is really important. And I write a lot about this in, in the book. But at this time of my experience, you know, managing my edges was kind of a new thought for me. So I went out to my, my yard and I looked around and I said, you know, do I have any edges or any unused spaces that I hadn't thought about using before. And I looked to the parking strip, which is that unused strip of grass between the sidewalk and the street. I think it's called different things in different places. Mm -hmm. But I thought, you know, that is the most flat and the most sunny place in my entire yard is there a way that I could put that to use? And I thought about it and, you know, it's a very busy sidewalk, lots of kids on bikes and dog walkers and, you know, what's going to stand the test of kids and dogs. And I decided that, you know, when you're driving down a regular street, a lot of times you see ornamental trees growing in the parking strip. And everybody thinks that those ornamental trees are just fine to be there. Well, I decided why not have an edible tree. So, in my parking strip, I planted three dwarf cherry trees and, you know, I underplanted them with some comfrey, chives, and clover to make a make them into little fruit tree guilds. But I was really surprised they were strong and sturdy. They survived the kids on bikes because the fruit is off of the ground, it's safe from the the dogs. And um, I ended up harvesting about 30 pounds of cherries a year from that space that originally was just unused space. But it was at the edge of my property. And a lot of times, those are the places that we forget to look.
0: You've touched on so many good things there, because I think about that landscape that is seen as less than ideal. And that that's one of the places where I first really began to see the applicability of permaculture because there's that thought of what a perfect farm field should be. And in the Midwest, a lot of times that's laser leveled. There's construction equipment that's brought in in order to just kind of flatten it all out. And where I grew up in Western Maryland, we have a lot of limestone outcrops. And so as a result of that, you have these like strips of land that's being grown on for commodity crops like wheat or soybeans. And then those rocky sections are where the animals are running. And then here in Pennsylvania, we have all of these hills and water and situations that can seem kind of intimidating at first. But when we look at all the realm of possibility underneath the umbrella of permaculture, you can look to those hills and they become similar to that parking strip and being able to plant trees there. Or maybe installing a small path that someone can walk along then to harvest from them. Or even collecting the downed fruit when it falls off the trees. There are different ways that we can approach this space that we might not think of otherwise. And then when you were talking about small spaces and using what you have and not having to drive, I think of something that my permaculture instructor Ben Weiss spoke about. In that he was managing, I think it was like one and a quarter acres of intensively managed, hand cultivated farmland and that that was more than enough for himself and i think it was three other people the four of them would very often wind up getting behind with certain things because they could just grow so much food in that space when they were actively involved in participating in the landscape
1: yeah that's right our small spaces can be incredibly productive and a lot more than i think a lot more than we give them credit for and even when there are challenges, you know, even when, even when we have poor soil, for example, as you're saying, and my, my backyard was, as I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, it had been a swimming pool. So really poor fill was brought in to fill in that swimming pool that the former owners had and blue painted chunks of concrete were in the soil. And half the backyard was a driveway. And a lot of barriers back there, but I built some raised beds on a portion of the driveway that we weren't using. And I ended up growing, you know, 80 pounds of vegetables a year in the shade and just a few raised beds. And so when we look at what's possible, we can actually probably go ahead and think that even in what we think is, you know, a limited view of what we could accomplish, the reality is probably much more.
0: And you've spoken about what you've been growing on your home site and the amount of food that you're growing is stacking up pretty quickly. You know, we're already at over a hundred pounds just from the quick math of what you've shared so far, which begins to become pretty substantial. And so I was wondering with the title of your book being The Suburban Microfarm, when I think about farm, it usually is about commercial agriculture and growing food as a business. Is that part of your work or is it to get people to think about the productivity in their local landscape?
1: Yeah, you know, I think when I think about farm, it was actually my editor who was really interested in using the term micro farm for my book, because when we looked at all of the strategies and solutions that I was, you know sharing, it didn't seem to do it justice to mention the word "garden" because it's, you know a lot more than that. And so, but I was a little apprehensive at first about the word using the word "farm" for that very reason. But, you know, actually, when I look at the word "farm" in the dictionary, it told me that a farm is an area of land used for growing crops or keeping livestock. It doesn't specify the size of that area, and it doesn't specify whether that space is for you know home scale production or commercial scale production. And so, for me, when when I read that, it was kind of like, okay, I think that micro farm is a really good term for this because, you know, even somebody who has a lot of space you know, might not want to be farming all of their space. That might seem overwhelming. So, you know, whether we're dealing with a truly small space or whether we're dealing with, you know, a part of a larger space, I think that we can take some cues from intensive small-scale gardening and uh, large-scale growing and permaculture and kind of throw these ideas together to see what we come up with. And that's kind of how this you know, micro farm term came around for me in relation to my book. And so for me, speaking mostly about home scale production is is my passion and that's really what I focus on. But um there is a chapter in my book that I included. It's the last chapter of the book. Because I think sometimes when we go down this road of wanting to be food producers. And, you know, we would just want to spend all of our time out there in our landscape. There might be a time where we want to start supplementing our income with things that we can do around our productive homesteads. So I really did some brainstorming, met with a lot of local entrepreneurs. And in that particular chapter of my book, I came up with some solutions that are super low maintenance. So, you know, Even if you're not a full-time producer, some of these strategies might be able to supplement your income without a ton of work. And I also wanted to focus on strategies that were a low barrier to entry. So, you know, not a ton of expense would go into, you know, starting some of these income-making possibilities. But for example, I'll just give you one example that I share in the chapter is about growing annual crops with a long season that you might want to take to market in your local community. Things like, for me, just a couple of, just a few examples are, you know, garlic, winter squash, sweet potatoes. For me, these are crops that you can put into the ground and then you don't really have to do a ton of work with until it's harvest time. So they don't need a ton of maintenance throughout the season. They don't need a ton of irrigation to make them work. And another benefit of these crops is that, especially if you're wanting to grow them for extra income and take them to market, perhaps, they store well. So if you take them to market on that first day and you don't uh, sell all of what you brought, uh, they're still going to be good. You can take them home. They're going to last through the winter. Um, You can take them back again and again. So that's just one example of how I wanted to supplement this information that I was supplying to my readers who are starting to get really excited about this lifestyle.
0: And with those plants that you suggest for growing in this way, with you being near Cincinnati, which is further north in the United States, that provides a good opportunity for people throughout the country who have a longer growing season as well.
1: I can imagine those crops would go even further for people who are in a different growing zone, for sure, with warmer weather.
0: And moving from growing and the landscape, One of the things that we spoke about before when we were setting up this interview was about the need for human-based solutions. And in focusing on that, how we can increase the quality of our relationships with others in order to solve some of the larger land-based problems. With that in mind, what do you see as the challenges and rewards involved in building a longer table instead of a higher fence? I know from my own experience that creating a front yard garden can be kind of intimidating for your neighbors when they walk by and see you tearing everything up and installing plants that they're not used to. And instead, they're expecting a lawn to match everything else. And you hear those whispers of, what are you doing to my property value? That, like, How can we work with those kinds of challenges?
1: You hit the nail on the head with the uh, front yard example. I, I think in the suburbs, we tend to live this self-enclosed life right? We have our privacy fences, (laughs) and we have our property lines. And uh, for the most part, I think I look at this as, you know, kind of a human experiment, because for so much of of our human history, we lived in tribes and, you know, small communities where we were all living together intentionally, because, you know, we had some Something in common, whether we were family or some other kind of reason for us to be, you know, placed together in a small space. But here we are, and this isn't only true for the suburbs. But uh, you know, since we're speaking about the suburbs, you know, we're out there. We tend to have very different outlooks and perspectives and experiences with life than our neighbors. So uh, naturally, there can be complications at the property line. And I remember when you know, I mentioned that we removed the the hedge lining our front porch and planted currant bushes. but uh, and that was really cool. But then, you know, I went on to take the permaculture design course, and i I started practicing with site design and a whole landscape design and And I created this really cool design for my front yard, and I put it to use, and it took water from the roof and directed that into a front yard swale and the overflow was a rain garden and it was a really super productive space that actually turned out to be really beautiful. I made sure to include, you know, a lot of flowers and herbs. and um, But there was that moment when we were out there digging this thing (laughs) in our front yard in February and we've got holes everywhere, ditches, and dirt piles of dirt and you know it was in that instance that the neighbors came over to see what we were working on and I had never before that I think this was the third or fourth year of us living at that house and that was the first time I had seen all of the neighbors standing together actually having a conversation so all the neighbors were standing around on the sidewalk watching us dig this thing. But it became this interesting spectacle. And we got to tell them what we were working on. And a lot of them were pretty anxious because they like their lawns. But, you know, the end result was something really cool. And it allowed us to not only have this really cool, you know, low maintenance, passively irrigated landscape, but it also allowed us to have relationships with our neighbors because they could see what we were growing. And so all of these neighbors started coming over wanting to swap what they were growing in their gardens with what I was growing. And I didn't know they had gardens because all of their gardens were in their backyard. So just having my front yard garden allowed all of the gardeners to come out of the closet, (laughs) so to speak, And talk to one another and connect. And I even had one gentleman who lived behind us. And he was really grouchy through this whole experience because he liked lawn, he liked order, and he didn't really have a full understanding, I mean, how would he, of what this whole front yard was going to look like once it was fully leafed out and flowering and producing But at one point he walked over and he humbly asked for a tour and he wanted to learn more about it. And he said, you know, this is wonderful. And then he ended up offering me a space in his yard to expand my production into. And that was a really uh, special moment for me. So I created this garden in his yard. And every time I went out there to tend it, Many of the neighbors came out to talk to me while I did it. Now, they weren't helping, but it was this common thing we could talk about. And then I would share the harvest. And a lot of times I would cook something up with the harvest and share a meal rather than just the raw ingredients. But that kind of brings me to this point that, you know, in the suburbs and any other places where we we live close to other people we tend to think that we don't have anything in common but that one thing that we do have in common is that we're human and that we all have to eat and so um in the end we weren't talking you know politics or hobbies or how we want to spend our time or how we like to manage our lawns but none of those things seemed to matter when we were just connecting as humans who you know eat food so that was really special for me but i wanted to actually give another example of you know how we can bring this relationship aspect to our communities because i feel like not only speaking to people that live right next to us but in our communities at large so we can feel like we're on an island especially in the suburbs and the car-centric suburbs so in my Community, I decided that I wanted to start a food growing activity of some kind. So I booked a space and I had a public meeting about a community garden. And I didn't know if anybody would show up. I was super nervous because I was kind of new to the community. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know if anybody would show up. But about 30 people came to that meeting. And it told me that we live in the suburbs. Most of the people in my community have their own yards. So if they want a garden, they probably already have one. But they were all coming to this meeting about a community garden. And so I realized that community gardens are actually important spaces for communities, uh, regardless of what type of community it is. So our garden actually was a food forest on a really steep hill at our local university. I founded this program and ran it for five years. And we always, our group always liked to say that we grew more community than we did food. It was a a communal project. So every Saturday morning and Wednesday evening, we met up as a group and we did this grueling work to try to develop and restore this steep hillside. And, you know, it wasn't until the last, Year or so that we were actually even growing any food, but just the grueling work itself was a really bonding experience. But it turned into potlucks and social events. And, you know, again, food was the connector. You know, we all had gardens in our own yards, but we needed this common space and this common project to come together.
0: And I love to hear stories like that because it was one of the things for me that helped me connect with my neighbors as we were tearing up the front yard. There are some folks who would walk down the road a couple of times a day. And so I would see these people pass over and over again. And one of the first things that I planted were everbearing strawberries. And here in Pennsylvania, they'll produce from mid-May all the way up to the first killing frost in mid-October. And so it was always fascinating and fun for me as these were growing, that these neighbors would pass by at the end of September and here I am harvesting still a pint of strawberries a day and handing some to them as they come by and being able to engage in conversation there. And they see what we're doing and they're part of that process then and get to enjoy that harvest. And then that front yard garden starts to make a lot more sense.
1: Yeah, it sure does. I love that phrase, you know, we grow more community than we do food. And of course, I hope that everybody who wants to grow more food gets to grow more food. But I also, you know, there's also this piece about community that you're mentioning with the strawberries that I think is really beautiful. And a lot of times it happens, you know, without having to really work at it or make it a point or just humans who are out taking a walk and there happens to be a person that's harvesting strawberries and you get to have a person-to-person, real-life human exchange. And, you know, the reward is some strawberries and, you know, who doesn't love strawberries?
0: As we begin to engage in the landscape and with our neighbors in these suburban and urban spaces, what do you see as the future for permaculture in these densely populated areas?
1: You know, I think permaculture is more accessible now than it ever has been with, you know, the internet being, you know, something that we, for most of us have access to. And that is creating this sort of new wave of permaculture, but it's very different, I think, than what we have seen up until this point. What I'm seeing now is this kind of, I'm going to say a la carte permaculture. Not everyone is taking a permaculture design course these days. And of course, that's a really special part of my development in permaculture. So I always, you know, encourage that. But I see a lot of people who are looking toward, you know, the internet or books to be their teachers as opposed to these, you know, in-person design courses, which has been the traditional way that you enter into the, you know, permaculture world. An example I can think of is building a fruit tree guild, for example. I kind of see that as like this a la carte, I'm just going to sort of pick this technique out of a bunch of tools in the permaculture toolbox and I'm going to put this to use in my yard. And, you know, when we do that, You know, we're kind of looking away from having this whole site design that we start with and observing the patterns on our property. And permaculture traditionally is this holistic approach, but this whole system's design. But here we are just sort of cherry picking this, you know, idea of a fruit tree guild and adding these, you know, underplantings to existing fruit trees, for example. And I think that this can be quite alarming for permaculture purists and you know traditional um, permaculture practitioners. And you know, I can totally understand that, and I also think that we're not going to stop this wave either with the onset of the the internet. So I think that the future of permaculture, we're going to see. A less dogmatic application of it, for better or for worse. But I can say there are always two sides of the coin. And in this case, I'm going to hopefully say that the problem is the solution. Uh, We may not have people starting out in permaculture, taking a permaculture design, and then getting started. I think what we're seeing are People who are picking out tools in the permaculture toolbox that make sense for them in the moment. They're integrating those into their existing food-producing you know, gardens or landscapes. And suddenly, they have more connection to their land. A fruit tree guild, where there once was none, is going to be a more biodiverse place than it was if the fruit trees were just underplanted with grass, for example. So I think in the end, ultimately, this new approach to permaculture might bring more people to the table. And perhaps all of this connection to the land and increasing biodiversity in their spaces, perhaps they will come back around and, you know, become permaculture students and, you know, take a design course and be more, you know, official about it. But I think one of the things that's important to remember in permaculture is that the inhabitants must be willing to participate in the evolution of a site design of a landscape. And so we could go in as permaculture practitioners and create this, you know, super integrated whole site design and start from ground zero and like, you know, work our way up to this, you know, really amazing landscape. But but the inhabitants have to be willing to integrate and interact with that. And I think we are doing that when we give them tools to, to try out in their yard. And I have so many of my readers that come to me and are so excited about how much richer their experience is as a gardener when they add some of these permaculture tools to their existing gardens.
0: What you said there for me, sitting in this place as the host of this show for so many years and talking with the full gamut of permaculture practitioners professionally and otherwise, I find that that application of permaculture where we can use it is really important. And what you said about getting the inhabitants of a space involved matters because some of my permaculture teachers and other people I've talked to, they've worked on designs you know, from the ground up. And many of them say that, you know, only about 25% of their designs that they've ever done have been implemented. And it's one of the things that I've said off and on for many years is that I would rather help someone with a design that is only 1% permaculture, but 100% gets implemented, than to try to do something that is this high order, 100% fully integrated, but then it just sits there and languishes. Because it's been for me kind of a waste of both mine and my client's time that let's find something that we can do that will be productive maybe it is just that single apple tree guild or a couple of vegetable boxes in a front yard rather than this idealized approach but something that can be practical implemented and worked with and grown from
1: yeah that's right you you hit the nail on the head with that i i really feel like whether we wish to start out from this whole systems design, starting from, you know, creating a whole system from scratch, maybe that's our, our wish, but it's it's not always realistic to do it that way. And I I love this idea that it just feels so much more freeing to be able to connect with people who are passionate about this and excited and meet them where they are and, you know, offer solutions that help them take the next step.
0: And part of your work in meeting people where they're at is that you're involved in the Permaculture Women's Guild Permaculture Design Course, which is yourself. And last I checked, it's actually more than 40 women who are world-renowned permaculture practitioners coming together to teach an extended, integrated online permaculture design course. And I was wondering if you might share with us a bit about That program and what piece of the curriculum you'll be presenting on.
1: Yeah, Scott, you know, this is a development that has happened fairly quickly within the past year. And I'm so excited to be, you know, a part of this amazing group of women. It all got started. The Permaculture Women's Guild was spearheaded by Heather Flores, who is the author of Food Not Lawns. And uh, we came together in this wonderful space that's mainly a Facebook group. And, you know, we are just a a group of women who are talking permaculture. And, and one day, this conversation came up about working together to create a permaculture design course together, you know, what would that look like? And first, it was just kind of like, Oh, yeah, right, that could happen. Ha ha. But (laughs) as we talked more about it, we realized that this was actually something that would be number one, really powerful, and number two, a really exciting project to work on. And just to be able to collaborate with other people, I have loved my experience collaborating with permaculture practitioners in my local area. But you know this is just one way that I've the internet has allowed us to come together with others. So the permaculture design course that we put together is an online, self-paced course. With, as you mentioned, 40 women from 13 countries. Really incredible. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of really well-known permaculture practitioners who are participating. I could name a lot, but I'll just, I'll name a few. Jesse Bloom, who's the author of Practical Permaculture. Dal Ryan, the author of Beyond the War on Invasives. Maddie Harland, the co-founder of Permaculture Magazine UK. So this class or this course is the standard 72-hour standard design course certification, but we've added 10 bonus classes on those invisible structures that help us create community using ecological principles. Another thing that I think is really cool about this course is that all students will get Three hours of one-on-one mentoring. And we're able to do that because we have 40 teachers participating. So I think when we kind of look at this and compare it to a typical permaculture design course, I think what stands out for me is this uh, opportunity to get the perspective of this full range of women practitioners from around the world and, you know, the richness and the diversity that that brings. In a typical permaculture design course, you're usually getting the perspective of that single teacher or a handful of teachers, which is still powerful. And I'm thankful to have taken the class that I did. But but this is just one way that I think is really bringing permaculture to more people, just having the accessibility of the online course. So that's a little bit about the course. And I'll tell you the part that I'm teaching, I'm really excited about. I'm teaching the section on water. So I talk a lot about our relationship with water, you know, not just in the landscape, but in our personal lives. I'm also co-teaching the earthworks section with uh, many of the women that I mentioned previously. So for me, this is a very exciting Opportunity all around.
0: I'm really looking forward to hearing the results of this course and the experiences from yourself and others and some of the students because I've interviewed so many of the people who will be teaching this course. And I really think that it's a great opportunity for people who have been in that space where perhaps they've had the money to take a course, but not the time, or the time, but not the money, or any kind of combination of life events that can prevent us from taking a PDC, even though we have that interest. And from what I've seen, you know, not only is there the diversity of teachers and topics, but it is also very reasonably priced compared to an in-person on-site intensive.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, the progress of this course over time. Uh, We opened the doors on April 1st and Uh, We actually already have over 100 participants already signed up. So we're excited to move forward with this and see where it goes.
0: I really appreciate the time that you've taken with me today, Amy, to sit down and record this longer than usual conversation about your work from an athlete and a school teacher to a permaculture writer and teacher and everything that you've shared with us today about what we can do in the suburban landscape. Before we draw this to a close though, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners and where can people find you? You
1: know, I personally, I'm excited about the possibilities for bringing permaculture to the suburbs. And I think if I had to sort of sum up um, my thoughts, I would say that, There are so many opportunities out there for growing more food in our underutilized spaces like lawns. (laughs) And we have so many opportunities for using food as a connector in our communities. So I'm really appreciative to be able to talk to you today and the work that you're doing to bring this kind of information to the world. I went ahead and set up a special page actually on my website for. Permaculture podcast listeners, and that is tentacrefarm.com/slash permaculture podcast. And that's where you can go, and uh, you'll find a link to sign up for my newsletter. Subscribers get my 19-page guide to organic soil amendments. You'll find a link to my book, uh, you'll find a link to the Permaculture Women's Guild Permaculture Design course. And um, then you'll also find some links to my social media accounts. So that's kind of a one-stop place to go and (laughs) find all things about me.
0: Well, thank you, Amy, for all of your work in this space that for me is so vital as we're moving forward because this really is the place where people are living. And so it's going to become even more important as we move forward as permaculture practitioners and citizens in the world.
1: Yes, thank you, Scott. This has been great.
0: And that was Amy Strauss. You can find out more about her and all she spoke about at tenthacrefarmcom slash permaculturepodcast. You can also find a link to that in the show notes. For Patreon supporters, I'm also giving away a copy of Amy's book, The Suburban Microfarm. As I don't know when you'll hear this, that giveaway runs from April 10th to the 19th, 2018. So look for that in the Patreon feed and enter today. If you're not a Patreon supporter yet but would like an opportunity to win this book, go to patreon.com/permaculturepodcast, check out the rewards, choose the level that's right for you, sign up and become an ongoing supporter of the Permaculture Podcast. What I like about this conversation is that Amy pulls everything together with her view to the future and how we have an outlook for permaculture that draws on the it depends response we often hear as the first place to start a permaculture design or discussion. As we would apply this thought to the landscape, we also should look to our clients and their situation and find what worked for their ideals, not our own, and the difference that a single tree, a row of currant bushes, or a conversation with a neighbor can have on the well-being for a people or place. What do you think of what Amy shared with us today? How are you building a longer table instead of a higher fence? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Email show at the call 717 827 6266, or write the permaculture podcast, PO Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania 17018. From here, the next interview is with Oliver Gaucher. He and I settle in to talk about natural building and designing for disasters. Until then, Spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by planting the edges, harvesting from small spaces, and taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.